Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we ask as we come to it now, that the meditations of our hearts upon it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight, and that you would be glorified, and that we would be edified. Amen. What a great prayer. You have to admit, it's a, it's a wonderful little section that Jesus prays right here. And it is jam-packed full of all kinds of stuff. This morning, we're going to think specifically and look specifically at the unity portions. Now, how do you arrive? What do you preach your first sermon? I'm preaching the very last sermon that I preached in Yazoo City. How about that? I'm reaching last week's sermon here. It was that kind of a week. And as I thought about it, because I really thought a lot about what I wanted to leave Yazoo City with, and what I wanted to leave them with was the thing that I strive so hard for and that Jesus prayed for, and that is that the church would be unified. You know, when you leave a church, there's a great potential there that things can get all mixed up and factions can develop. And so what I wanted for them was that they would be unified as they move forward. And then as I thought about coming to Lake Oconee, I thought, what a great message. What a great opportunity for us as we come and as I start in this position to think about the unity that Jesus prays for. It's a message. This passage is is a passage that um, years ago I heard Ed Clowney uh, talk about one of my professors in seminary, and then through the years have, have had other folks. I go back to it time and time again. It's a seminal passage. And, um, and so folks like Tim Keller and, and guys like that have really impacted and shaped my thinking about this passage. And it's just a beautiful place for us to be this morning. Listen, no matter the endeavor, no matter what it is that we do in life, going to the moon, sports, you name it, unity is almost always a key ingredient in success. No matter what you've done, what endeavor you've been a part of in life, unity is key to succeeding. That is everybody together moving towards the same goal, the same direction. It's absolutely critical. You know, there, there are all kinds of, you can go back and, and sort of look through history And there are all sorts of great moments in history where there were epic failures because people were not unified. You can go back and look at, you know, just there are all sorts of things. One of them that that, that kind of came to mind, as I thought, was uh, uh, the Seattle Mariners baseball team during the 90s. The Seattle Mariners in the 90s had three amazing players. One of them was the unit. Y'all remember the unit? He was uh, six what? 6'6", six, six, huge strapping tall, I mean, threw an amazing fastball. So they had the unit. They had Ken Griffey Jr., incredible home run hitter. Then they had Alex Rodriguez. So here is this baseball team stacked with some amazing players. And you know what they never won? They never won a World Series. They couldn't get there. Because for whatever reason, that team dynamic never developed in a way that allowed them to win a championship. You see it all the time. And I would just say at the outset, I am not Michael Jordan. Um, I am not Ken Griffey Jr. I am not Alex Rodriguez. I am not going to shoot 43 pointers in our game of life together. It is not going to happen. And here's the deal. The deal is that we are brought together together. As a team, 
as the body of Christ. None of us, by God, we have different functions and different roles, none of us greater than the other. And all of you have an opportunity in, to impact the kingdom just like I do. And, it, and that sort of unity um, is what allows us to be successful. Jesus prayed for that success. And if you look at his prayer, one of the amazing things is, what is he praying for as he goes through verses 20 to 26? He's saying, I want them to be unified. Why? Because I want them to succeed. And, what, and success in Jesus' book as, he, as he's going through this prayer is that the world would know that God sent Jesus into the world. That the world would know the gospel. That's essentially it. That's success. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that he is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so success is the building of his church that is to the world a picture of God's goodness and His grace, the unity that exists in the Trinity. And so um, as Jesus prays for that, we want to pray for that. And it is the key to our success. Now, I love this example. Tim Keller tells an example of the first church that he ever arrived at. And he gets there to the church and he says, I was there just a couple of days and somebody came and they knocked on the door. He opened it, I came in and they said, Pastor, I'm here, and I just want to let you know what I think is wrong with our church and what I think it'll take to get it right. And so he says, okay. And so they sat down, and they looked out the window. They said, I want you to look out the window. So he looked out the window. He said, do you see that, that trailer park out there? And he said, they were surrounded by this very large trailer park. And he said, yep. And he said, that trailer park, this person told him that, you know, in that trailer park are all kinds of people with all kinds of needs, and they're hurting. And we are doing nothing to meet the needs of the people who live in that trailer park. Okay, thought about it. They left. Said so the next day, another knocked on the door. They opened the door. Somebody was standing there. They came in and said, Pastor, I just want to let you know what I think is wrong with our church. And what I think it's going to take to get us on track. Okay, sounds vaguely familiar. Come on in. So they came in and they sat down. And as they got started, they said, I want you to look out the window. Do you see that trailer park? Oh, this is sounding eerily similar. And they went on to say, I think the problem is we have no strategic vision to reach the people in that trailer park with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have no plan. We, we're not evangelizing. We haven't gone over there. We, don't, we haven't done door-to-door. We don't do mail ads. We haven't done anything. And so they went through their thing, and he took notes, and they left. And the next day, guess what happened? Somebody else showed up. And they came in, and they outlined it after telling him to look over at the trailer park. And he says, you know, I thought about it, and I wanted to tell him. You mean, you know, as they came into the office. Hold on, let me tell you. you know, let me guess. The trailer park across the street. But they went through it and they said, and their issue was, we have no organizational skills. We're not organized properly. And they went through all of that. And he said, you know, out of, out of that, when, when they left, he realized that the issue was he had three people coming to his office. And what did they have? They had three different giftings. And they were looking at that trailer park. They all had a heart for it. They all had a heart for their community and for the world. But... They were looking at their one lane and they were so concerned about that and and they didn't feel like everybody else was concerned in the way that they were concerned. 
And, and because of that, there was this friction that was going on in their midst. And they felt like they had these wild, out-of-control problems because everybody didn't see what they saw out there. Now, you and I have to realize that not everyone is just like us. That the person sitting next to us is not us. God didn't design us that way. He didn't, he didn't wire us that way. He, unity does not mean similarity. It does not mean homogeneity. You are not all the same. There are similar things about you. And we're going to talk about those because Jesus talks about them. But you are different. Somebody likened it to walking over to the piano. If you walked over to the piano and you took a, a tuning fork that was tuned to... Listen, when I start using musical examples, you know there's somebody else's. But they say, you walk over to this piano, open it up, take a tuning fork, and, and hit the C. What's going to happen inside that piano? What string is going to vibrate? The C. That is what's going to vibrate. And so that string is going to begin to vibrate because that's what's, that, that string is hearing itself. But what's going to be happening to A and B? Anything? No. And so there inside the piano are A and B. C is vibrating like crazy and A is looking at B going, you hear anything? I don't hear anything. Nothing going on in my heart. And that's somewhat of what happens in a congregation of people. There are things that make you vibrate that don't make the person next to you vibrate. And, and guess what? It's okay. Because what makes them vibrate doesn't make you vibrate. And that's the unity because we're all together and we're moving in the same direction. And we, we love the same things. And before us is the chief thing, which is the glory of God. And so we're all pushing towards that and we're all being vibrated about different things in the church because we have different gifts, we have different abilities, we have um, different skills that God has given to us. Same objective, the glory of God we go about reaching it, accomplishing it, magnifying it in different ways. And guess what? That's exactly the way God designed it. So, in the text, let's look at a few of the elements of unity that Jesus prays for. In verse 20, if you've got your Bibles open, Jesus says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, the first, the first point here is, when we think about the unity that Jesus prays for, is it has a very common beginning. It's similar. And the common beginning for us all is this. We come to faith in Jesus Christ. A part of this membership, a part of this community, a part of the church, everybody enters the same way. We all, we all get here the same way. And Jesus says that the way that that happens is, um, because he's praying for it, is that we believe in the message that was given about him. We believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the common experience of every Christian everywhere. Everyone who's a true believer has had the exact same experience. They've repented of their sins, they've trusted in Jesus, they, and they've trusted in Jesus by faith alone. 
That's the message. That's the commonality. We all go through that gate together. And because we go through that gate together, what does it create? It creates a common bond and experience. How many men do we have in the room that have been to boot camp? Got a few? Oh my goodness, we got a bunch. Listen, we could all get together and guess what we'd have? We'd have virtually the same story. We went through different times. But one of the things about military life is, one of the ways in which the military creates a team is they put you through similar experiences. They put you into a furnace and everybody goes through it together. And so you forge together a common bond because of a common shared experience that you have where they take you down and build you up together. And so we could all get together. All of the military folks in this room could get together if you've been through boot camp. We could sit down. Maybe the Navy guys. I don't know. Does boot camp and Navy really count? <laughs> Just kidding. We could all get together and we would have a very shared experience. And, and we could communicate and we would know what the other person was saying because we've been through that boot camp experience. We didn't go through it the same time, but we understand the similarities. Listen, the gospel does that. One person says that the gospel gives us a psychology, a gospel psychology that's completely unique and different from the world. And that's true. What is it? What is it about the gospel and this gospel psychology? How does it happen? It happens because every single one of us begins by confessing our sin. You have to, in order to be a Christian, you have to confess that you're a sinner. It's a common shared experience. And so every single person that you encounter who says, I am a Christian, you can expect and believe that they know and have confessed their sin. And they should be in an ongoing state of repentance all the way along. Because we're sinners. Remember Martin Luther says, uh, the, the Latin phrase was simul iustus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. We don't run away from it. We don't get away from it. It's true of all of us. And because of that, we have a shared and common experience. This gospel psychology, we are looking at each other and we know the truth about each other. And it's same. If there's a similarity there um, that we share together and we understand it. And so um, that's the beginning. It's a common shared beginning that we all have. Now, the other part of that is, think about this. We don't create it. We don't generate it. God does. And so the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, 13, or 4 verse 3, you can write it down or, or you can just kind of uh, listen as I, as I read this one little section. But in Ephesians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity. Some of your translations will say to maintain the unity. That's interesting. It doesn't say make every effort to create the unity. He says make every effort to maintain the unity. Listen, when God draws us together, when we go through that common experience of faith in Jesus, 
He is drawing us together. He is doing that. It is his unity that we maintain. Now, a question that may kind of arise in your head is, okay, how do I maintain it? And I would just submit to you that you maintain it by living a life of faith and repentance. You maintain it by living a life of faith and repentance. We'll talk a little bit more here in a couple minutes about the means of grace and what that does for us. But it is your job, it is my job, it is every person who's sitting next to you, to your right and to your left, to focus on maintaining the unity to which you were drawn into. It's a part of why God created us um, and brought us into this relationship. Is one of the things that we do, one of our functions is that we maintain this unity that Jesus himself is praying for. And so we do it, as I said, largely by practicing the things that got us here, faith and repentance. Listen, think about that. Think about perhaps a, re- a relationship issue. Any, anybody have a relationship in here? Yeah? Anybody ever had a problem in that relationship? Yeah? Every one of you? Don't lie. Yeah, we've all had relationship issues. Now, think about this. What does the gospel do for us in those relationship issues? It lets us speak the same language to each other. So when you come to the person, you know there's a pretty good chance, because you're a sinner, there's a pretty good chance that your wiring is messed up. There's a pretty good chance that you've got it wrong in this situation between you and this other person. You know the gospel. You've heard the gospel. You understand what Jesus says. If your brother has something against you, what? Wait for him to come and fall at your feet in repentance. No. If your brother has something against you, what does Jesus say? Go to him. You go to him. That's gospel psychology. That's completely different. That's that's turning the whole situation upside down. Because now you go to them, and how do you go? Well, he tells us exactly how we go. We take the log out of our own eye to go and to help our brother with the piece of sawdust in his eye. Gospel psychology. See, we begin taking the things that Jesus taught us about ourselves and who we are as fallen creatures, and we're able to go to someone, and how do we go? Well, the Bible directs us how we go. We go in love. We go humbly. We go hoping for, seeking repentance and reconciliation because the Apostle Paul tells us that we are ministers of reconciliation. It's our job. That's part of the gospel psychology. And what does that do? That fosters unity. That fosters good relationships among us as we go to one another, as we work with one another. So, real unity begins where this gospel psychology develops for us, and it all begins with Jesus. It all begins through faith and repentance coming to Him. Now, here's the second part of this. The second part of Jesus' prayer for unity is its connected nature. Let's look at this together as we... Uh, As we work here. Verse 21. So in verse 20, he's prayed for all of those who will believe in him through the message the disciples preach. In verse 21, he says that all of them may be what? One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. There is this connected nature for us. Because of who we are. 
This is really quite amazing. And as Jesus talks about it, he alludes to something. He alludes to the unity that exists in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three, and yet one. That's mind-blowing. But Jesus is alluding to this unity that is occurring in the Godhead. And it was, as we look at the, as we look at the totality of the Word, we see that. And what we see is, though, though God is one, and yet three, those three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have different roles, functions. The Father plans and sends the Son. The Son comes and accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies that salvation to you and I. Now, there are other parts there. We read, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is responsible for creation. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our aid, our guide. There are different things. They have different functions, but but what are they? Well, they're one. He says they're one. They're united. They're together. They're pushing towards the goal, which is the glory of God. But they're accomplishing their functions. They're doing what they're supposed to do in order for that to happen and for salvation to be possible and for a people to be redeemed. Now you think about it and you can begin to think about us. There's a good example that was used. It comes out of 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7. And it's one verse. And, it, and in that verse, it talks about, it's the construction of the temple. And it talks about how the stones were to be carved out at the quarry. And all of the work was to be done in the quarry. So the stones were to be smooth, they're to be set, they're to be fixed. They're, they're to have all of that work with all of the chiseling and the hammering is all to be done at the quarry. And then they were to move the stone from the quarry to the building site where the temple was being erected. And then they were to be fit into place. What an amazing picture. Someone has likened it to what happens to us, right? That we're carved out. God is doing this work on us. But then he brings us together with other believers. Now, I love it because I think it reflects that language that Peter gives to us when he says that we are living stones being built together. As a, as the temple of the living God, the dwelling place for God. But think about that. They would, they would do all of this work. They would hew the stone out. They would get it all ready. And then they would bring it to the temple site and they would slip it in and it would fit. And it would fit together in such a way that they were able to erect the temple on site without the noise of a hammer or a chisel one. And God was building that together, piecing those people together, this interconnected nature that Jesus is talking about. The glory of the Trinity is as they are unified for the glory of God is what Jesus is praying for for us. And so the Lord has done this work in us. He's called us to Himself. Sinners, wrecks, All of us, every last one of us, a train wreck. The Apostle Paul says what? We were dead in our trespasses and sins until the Spirit of God came and gave life to us. 
So we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He hews us out. He brings us together. And listen, you're here not by accident, but by His design. Building us together into His dwelling place. And so we fit together. We have gifts and talents and abilities, all of them together. Now here's what I would just say. You've got to put your gifts to use. You have to be exercising your gifts. They're integral to what is taking place in this body. This body doesn't function if you have come and joined this church. If you're not using your gifts, this body is hobbled. That's just the reality of it. Because God brought you here and you have gifts. And here's the thing. Your gifts are not for you alone. They're for the person sitting to your left and the person sitting to your right and the person in front of you and the person behind you. And so here's the reality. When you don't use your gifts, what happens? You rob that person next to you, in front of you, beside you, of your ministry to them. You rob them. Because God brought you here and He put you there and He inserted you as a stone into this living facility so that you would be good for everybody around you. And so when you and I don't function, when we don't get involved, when we don't use our gifts, when we don't find our niche, and listen, leaders, the elders of the church have to do a a good job of making it so that you can find that niche. Okay? Less government is a good thing, even in the church. Hey, because all of that red tape sometimes inhibits people from getting involved in using their gifts. And so we want to make those pathways easy for you to come and find a ministry opportunity, either join someone or create one. Because remember, you're all vibrating to different sounds. And here's the other thing. Don't look around and say, you know, so-and-so is not doing what I love doing. That's okay. It's okay that everybody's not engaged in your particular activity because you're that string that's vibrating to a sound that's out there, to a need you see and perceive. Go recruit some folks. But don't be upset if everybody doesn't see it the way you see it. Perhaps they're seeing it another way and they're using their gifts. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about when he he talks about the body in 1 Corinthians 12. The hand... You can't look at uh, the foot and say, you're useless to me. You're not, a, you're not a hand. And the foot doesn't look at the hand and say, you're pointless to me because you're a hand. No. We're, we're, we're united. All of us come together using those gifts and we create this body or we create this temple and that is good. You can think about it. <coughs> In 537 A.D., uh, Emperor Justinian built what we know as the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, Turkey. The Hagia Sophia, built in 537, uh, was kind of the center of Christendom for 900 years. I'd love to see a show of hands. I'm not going to ask whoever's been there. I lived in Turkey for two years, so I got to see it. But it's a phenomenal building. Just an amazing, and to think about it when it was constructed... But then somewhere along the way, well, about, about 1400, give or take, um, when the Muslims rolled in, uh, the Ottoman Empire and all of that, 
they went in and they put minarets all around it and it became, um, you know, I think the citadel of mosques or something was what it was called. And, and it became a, it became, um, you know, a mosque. And they went in and there were these beautiful mosaics all over the walls. And they went in and they plastered over them or they destroyed some of them, but they covered them all up. And it wasn't until um, about 500 years later that they were uncovered. And when you go there, it's amazing. Mosaics are quite amazing because they're made up of these little bitty tiny bits of glass or stone or some substance like that. Where if you take each one of them and you look at them individually, what are they? Pointless. But when you take them and you put them together into this mosaic, it becomes phenomenal. And those mosaics are in there and these little tiny pieces of stuff and it's, they're just beautiful. Just beautiful. Now listen, you and I are those little tiny bits, okay? We're little pieces of stone. We're not terribly impressive on our own, but when we come together, when the Lord brings us together, we make a beautiful mosaic. Now, here's the flip side of that. The flip side of that is you matter. And you utilizing your gifts matters. If you go to, if you go to Matthew chapter 11, you'll see there in that passage that Jesus, let's just do that. Jesus says some just really incredible stuff in Matthew 11. And I want to take you to just one little verse there where he says this. Verse 11, so Matthew 11, 11, he says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, when you first read that, it doesn't strike you as terribly amazing stuff, but here's what Jesus is saying. John the Baptist, his job was to announce he was the forerunner of Jesus. He leapt in the womb. He and Jesus leapt in the womb when their mothers met. An amazing connection, clearly called by God to do an amazing job, to announce to be the herald that Jesus was coming. How about you? Sounds like a pretty awesome gig and a pretty good job, except he did lose his head. All right? Now, but think about what Jesus is saying here. John the Baptist had that job, an amazing job. But what Jesus says here is the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least in this kingdom that I have inaugurated and established, the least of those individuals will be greater than John the Baptist. Why why does he say that? He says that because the least in the kingdom have been given the fullness of gifts and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You... And if you're here and you have trusted in Christ, you are in possession of gifts that Jesus gave to the church and you're in possession of the Spirit of God in ways that even John the Baptist wasn't. And you know what that makes you? Pretty significant operator in the life of a church. It means you are a fairly significant player, an amazing player in the life of the church, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And what do you walk away with from that? Well, here's what I hope you hear. I hope you hear, you mean God has given me gifts? Yes. If you haven't discovered them, if you need a little aid or help, whatever, let me know. 
let an elder know, let somebody in here that you trust and you've spent some time with know, and, and then go to work discovering what it is that makes you tick in the church. And then find a way to use your gifts. Because the least of us is greater than John the Baptist. Because of what God's given to us, the way he's endowed us. I don't know, I haven't, I haven't been to a lot of symphonies, but I've been to a few, and I've also heard musicians warming up, practicing. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever had that opportunity and you, you, you hear different parts of an orchestra playing individually as they practice and that sort of thing, have you ever been there and done that? When you hear the French horn or the oboe or, you know, some of those things strike up, you go, oh, okay. It's not particularly an amazing sound sometimes. But what happens when all of those pieces are put together into the fully functioning orchestra? What do you get? You get the symphony. You get an amazing sound because everybody's playing their part. And when everybody plays their part, though individually it may sound rough, together it's quite amazing and it's a really beautiful picture. And that is the interconnectedness of the church that Jesus wants for us. Now, let's move to our final point. It's ultimate expression. And you see it in verse 26. In verse 26, this is what Jesus says. He says, I have made you known to them. So Jesus says, Father, I've made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus is essentially saying, I want these people, I want these people to have you and me in them. I want them to reflect the love of you and me. That's an amazing statement. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we are transformed into his likeness, what an amazing statement. Or in 1 Corinthians 15.49, where he says that they were in the likeness of the earthly man, we are in the likeness of the heavenly man. You and I are being remade into the image of Christ, which is what he was praying for. Let them be like us. Let them look like us. Let them have the love that we have. Let them have the unity that we have. Now, that's the expectation. Let me ask you a question. That's the expectation. The expectation is that you and I would reflect the person of Christ, that we would be in His likeness, look like Him. So let's ask the question. Let's ask it this way. If you had a son or daughter... And you took them and you went out and, and look, tennis, baseball, you name it. Let's say you went to the tennis pro. Had a few lessons. You came back and the tennis pro looked at you after a few weeks and said, you know what? Johnny is amazing. He has unbelievable natural talent. Now, in order for Johnny to be this good, here's what you need to do. And then he laid out. Johnny needs to have tennis lessons three times a week. He needs to hit 500 balls uh, a week. He needs to work on this grip. He needs to work on his backhand. We need to work on his footwork. So you need to start doing some strength and conditioning, right? You go away as Johnny's mom and dad, and hopefully you go, we're not doing that. No, I'm just kidding. 
But you're probably going to walk away and you're going to go, okay, he just gave us the prescription for Johnny to look like this. So let's do it. Let's get Johnny to this point. Let's sign him up for the lessons. Let's get him all of the things that he needs in order for that to happen. Well, here's the deal. We are to reflect the glory of God. The image of Christ is being remade in us. That's the standard. That's what is set before you and I. And you know what the Bible tells us? It tells us how to get there. It tells us what it is that it takes in our lives in order to more and more reflect the image of Christ. To more and more be remade. And, and the old reformers talked about it and they called it the means of grace. Okay? A, a means of grace. And there are multiple means of grace. The Word, preached, read, studied individually and corporately together. So, I would just say, this this an easy prescription. Take the opportunities that your elders afford you in order to come and learn. Bible studies. Opportunities to gather. Come to worship. Come to Sunday school. You begin doing those things. You do them earnestly and guess what happens? There's a transformation in your thinking and your understanding that takes place in your life. It's a part of reflecting the image of God and it's a part of you being remade. Here's the second thing. Take advantage of the opportunities to participate in the sacraments of the church. We have two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Reflect on those baptisms when we have them. You see them in your own life. Participate in the Lord's Supper. It's coming up at the beginning of August. The Lord's Supper is a visible picture of the gospel for us. It's very powerful. God the Father, He gave them the Passover in the Old Covenant. He's given us the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant. Why? Because we're weak. Because we need that visual picture, and so He gives it to us, and it's a means of grace for us. Prayer. And then I add one to the list. It's sometimes included, sometimes not. I like it. I think it should be a part. It's a healthy part of church life, and that is fellowship. Being connected and united together. It's a vital part of church life. When you go to the book of Acts and you read about the early church, one of the things that you see is that they ate regularly together, they broke bread together often, and they did that and they were together. And then it says they shared all of the things that they had together. No one was in need because everyone was giving, because everyone was sharing. Listen, that is a vital part of real, true unity. Because it's only there as you're together with people, rubbing up against people, that all of this gospel psychology gets lived out. If you leave after Sunday morning and you don't come back again till the next Sunday and you don't engage any other brothers and sisters in Christ for a whole week, you're missing opportunities to have amazing arguments with them. (laughs) You're missing opportunities to have your life rub up against them and be really annoying so that they get to practice some real gospel-centered living. That's how it happens. You've got to live life together. We have to live life together. He brought us together. Let's live life together. So fellowship groups, supper clubs, 
All of these kinds of things. Find ways to get together to do that, to live life together in order to live this gospel psychology together. You do that, then some of this Proverbs 27, 17 stuff really starts happening, right? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Here's the deal. You can't sharpen anybody if you're never in contact with anybody. If you're not rubbing up against somebody, you're not going to be able to sharpen that person. You know how many one another's there are in the New Testament? We talk about these one another's. There are 59 of them in the New Testament. At least 59. Now, some of those are repeated. But there are at least 59 one another's. That is due to one another. Love one another. John 13, 34, love one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 7, I'm not going to do all 59. Romans 15, 7, accept one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Galatians 6, 1, carry one another's burdens. Colossians 3, 16, admonish one another. That is, counsel one another. How about James? Confess your sins to one another. Listen. Got to find ways to be in community. These are very vital. These are important aspects of growing in unity for the glory of God. Because it's only as the world sees you and I living together in unity. It's, it's easy to be unified, unified when you show up for an hour on Sunday morning. That's a piece of cake. Go change oil in somebody's car. Y'all change oil. Go change oil in somebody's car with them and let them bust their knuckle and, you know, all of that around you. And then we'll start. Then there's, you know, do you've got to live life together. And it's as we live life together that the world will see that picture and what glorify as Jesus prayed for glorify you glorify God. And so we do that in contact with one another. Jesus's prayer for unity. It has a common beginning. It has an interconnected nature. And it has an ultimate, ultimate expression that comes to us as we reflect the image and glory of God. Let's pray for it. Father, we thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the prayer that Jesus prayed. And Father, we would just, as we thought about it this morning, we would pray that back. Father, we want to be unified exactly as you and the Father and the Spirit are unified. We want that. We're not. Father, part of our confession needs to be we do not yet experience that unity. It's a rare gift. But Father, we want it. And so we want to pray for it and we want to pray regularly for it. Let us be unified. Not not the same. Father, let us express our gifts our abilities. Let us think about your glory. Let us push towards your glory. Let us be concerned for your name and everything that we do together, that you would be glorified. And Father, we know as that happens, it will be good for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would indeed allow us the pleasure of being a unified people and that we would do it all for your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.